Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, April 2nd, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to present part two of the Jews in Europe, the Converso Problem, and the Inquisition. Here we shall offer a brief summary background loosely based upon what we had seen in the first segment of this presentation, adding a few of our own opinions. After the Visigoths of Spain had converted to Christianity and began to regulate their kingdom with Christian principles, life for the Jews became quite intolerable. Laws were made whereby Jews could no longer lend money to Christians on usury. Jews could no longer hold office or rule over Christians. And other laws by which Jews could no longer live as parasites on the larger white society. Jews had thrived for centuries in pagan Spain and the parasites were not going to let themselves be deprived of such a profitable host. So in the 7th century, the Jews reacted by bringing the Moslems into Spain from Africa in order to destroy the Gothic kingdom. Perhaps around two-thirds of the Iberian Peninsula came to be ruled and also occupied by Arabs and Moors for over seven centuries. But when the Moslems were finally being forced out in the reconquest, the Jews remained, their role in the Moslem invasion being quite obscure to most all Spaniards and, unfortunately, even to most Christians today. What's happening now in Europe happened in Spain. 12, 1300 years ago. We can search out the events leading up to the Muslim invasions of North Africa and Spain, and we may find that Jews created the Muslim religion for the purpose of organizing the Arab hordes against Christendom. While that is outside of the scope of our purpose here, the result stands as the first proof of the assertion. By the time of Charlemagne, the kings and nobles of Europe had already discovered that because Christians generally could or would not do such things, the Jewish usurers, panderers, and merchants were useful as sources of revenue. Being outside of Christian law, Jews were allowed to operate anti-Christian enterprises within Christian lands, because the nobles could profit by taxing them. Because Jews operated in that same way in every country, they were also able to network and control trade between countries. So Jews not only became liable as taxpayers, but also came to be employed as tax farmers and financial administrators, and then as bureaucrats in many other areas, and they were used by the nobles to extract money, both from other Jews and from the Christian society in ways that other Christians would not. However, the Jews themselves profited greatly from the advantages which the nobles had given them. As we have seen, 
by the 13th century, the Christian majority in Spain could no longer tolerate the Jews who had come to dominate over them financially and through the bureaucracy. So they believed that forcing the Jews to convert to Christianity, the nature of the Jews would change and they would be able to live in Spain in harmony. But after the Jews were converted, their behavior only worsened because they refused to live like Christians while they gained all of the advantages granted to Christians within the Christian society. They also used their wealth to purchase offices within the church and government for which their new status gave them access, further increasing their dominance over the Christian majority. Therefore, the strife and division amongst the people of Spain was not solved by converting the Jews. By the 14th century, many Spaniards began to realize that it was not merely the Jewish religion, but the inherent racial nature of the Jews which made them act as they did. However, this understanding created a dilemma for the Roman Catholic Church, which falsely believes that its baptism sacrament changes the nature of an individual. So in order to uphold their false doctrine, the popes were forced to deny the racial nature of the Jewish question and make laws protecting Jews who continued to claim to be Christians. What was never done, however, was to force Jews claiming to be Christians to actually live as Christians. So Jews had the best of both worlds. Christian status without Christian accountability, while they continued to do things prohibited to Christians and profit greatly by them. Therefore, the Pope, seeking to protect their false religious doctrines, were actually running cover for the Jews. All of this is relevant to society today, because Christians, never admitting the racial nature of Jewish treachery, have come to be ruled over by Jews everywhere, and still cannot see the source of their troubles. But that is for another time. In 15th century Spain, the kingdoms of Aragon and Castile were riddled with unrest caused by the oppression of the common people by the minority of Jews who had come to dominate Spanish society by acting as conversos, supposed converts to Christianity, while continuing to function as Jews. There was also the fight against the Muslims to, to complete the reconquest or reconquista. Because of the unrest, Spain was riddled with civil war. The Jews were the target, the popes were protecting them, and the people were often in despair something had to break. These were pretty much the circumstances being described where we had left off with our presentation of chapter 6 of E. Michael Jones's book The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit and Its Impact on World History. And now we shall commence with that chapter which is titled The Converso Problem. 
where Jones is discussing a revelation, which Isabella of Castile, the wife of Ferdinand of Aragon, had received listening to a sermon where she became convinced that the only solution to the Jewish question was to renew the Inquisition and employ it against conversal Jews and eventually to drive the Jews out of Spain. Of course, this would have long-term consequences for the rest of Europe, which reach even to today. Isabella was the Queen of Castile and Leon from 1474, and through her husband became Queen Consort, of Sicily from 1469, of Aragon from 1479, and of Naples in 1504. She died in November of 1504. Her daughter, Joanna I, succeeded her in Castile and Leon, and her husband Ferdinand retained his own crowns until his death in 1516. While Spain was united for a time in the marriage of Ferdinand and Isabella, it was not permanently united until the death of Ferdinand, when Joanna I, his daughter with Isabella, and her co-regent son, Charles V, came to rule both Castile and Aragon. Charles V, whose father was of the Austrian House of Habsburg, was the hereditary ruler of Austria, Burgundy, Aragon, and Castile, along with several other principalities that were held by Aragon. He went on to become Holy Roman Emperor during the formative years of the Reformation in Germany. So with this background, we shall commence with our presentation of this chapter. From page 213 of E. Michael Jones's book, The Jewish Revolution, Revolutionary Spirit and Its Impact on World History. In July 1477, Isabella came to Seville. During her stay, which lasted until October 1478, she was subjected to the sermons of Fray Alfonso de Hoyeda, the Dominican prior of Seville, who devoted all of his energies to making the crown aware of the reality of the danger from Jews and false converts. Espina's successor, Hoyeda convinced Isabella that her own court was infested with conversos, whose insincerity was incontestable, that according to principles universally accepted, it was the sovereign's duty to restore the unity of faith, and that the instrument to do this was the Inquisition a juridical body that had proven its worth dealing with the Albigensian heretics two centuries previously. And we must know that because the Roman Church has upheld so many dogmas which are actually hostile to Scripture, that contentions regarding the unity of faith can have results both good and bad. The persecution of the Albigensians was probably bad. A few decades 
after this time, after the time of Isabella and Ferdinand, during the indulgences dispute, the Emperor Maximilian opposed Luther in a letter written to the Pope in August of 1518 using the same excuse where he said that if not strenuously opposed, Luther's innovations would imperil the unity of the faith and private opinion would take the place of traditional dogma. Charles V would later reject Luther on similar grounds. Jones continues by describing Isabella's reaction to Hoyeda. Isabella was convinced radical measures were necessary. The report of Hoyeda and the Bishop of Cadiz convinced her nearly all converts were secretly practicing Judaism. They convinced her as well that the priests of Jewish descent were on the point of preaching the law of Moses from Catholic pulpits. Logic dictated that she could not rely on her courts because they were staffed by conversos. The only suitable instrument was the Inquisition, a legal body whose judges would be Dominican monks, carefully chosen and beyond the reach of intimidation or bribery. And as we saw presenting the story of Martin Luther and the Reformation here, which is, I pray, still ongoing, because we certainly aren't complete with it, that Dominican monks were also engaged in the controversy with Reuschland over the Talmud, which we will discuss here, once again, from E. Michael Jones's viewpoint in the weeks to come. Here we must take a digression. That a and explain that a historian whom E. Michael Jones has cited elsewhere in this chapter, Henry Charles Lea, has downplayed the impact of Hoyeda on Isabella, not agreeing with Jones's conclusions here. Where he said in his History of the Inquisition in Spain, in chapter 4, in reference to a man whom Jones just mentioned, Fray Alonso de Espina, that in his capacity of agitator, because Espina was agitating against the Converso Jews, he had been succeeded by Fray Alonso de Hoyeda, prior of the Dominican house of San Pablo of Seville, who devoted himself to the destruction of Judaism, both open as professed by the Jews and concealed as attributed to the conversos. Then, after the discussing the Battle of Toro, where Isabella had to fight off an impostor or a pretender to the throne, he writes, at the end of July, 1477, Isabella, after capturing the castle of Trujillo, came, as we have seen, to Seville, where she remained until October 1478. The presence of the court, with conversos filling many of its most important posts, excited Fray Alonso. Now, Jones calls him Alfonso de Hoyeda, where Charles Henry, Henry Charles Leia calls him Alonso, and there's confusion amongst other writers as well. 
the conversos were filling many of the posts in the court of Isabella, excited Fray Alonso to greater ardor than ever. It was in vain, however, and this is the exact opposite opinion of Jones. It was in vain, however, that he called the Queen's attention to the danger threatening the faith and the state from the multitude of pretended Christians in high places. She was receiving faithful service from members of the class accused, and she probably was, probably, so he's conjecturing, she probably was too much occupied with the business in hand to undertake a task that could be postponed. It is said that her confessor, Torquemada, who even E. Michael Jones has told us is also a converso Jew, at an earlier period had induced her to take a vow that when she should reach the throne, she would devote her life to the extirpation of heresy and the supremacy of the Catholic faith. But this may be safely dismissed as a legend of later date, and Henry Charles Leia does not tell us why. Be this as it may, all that was done at the moment was that Pero Gonzalez de Mendoza, then Archbishop of Seville, held a synod in which was promulgated a catechism setting forth the belief and duties of the Christian which was published in the churches and hung up for public information in every parish while the priests were exhorted to increase vigilance and the frails or the friars to fresh zeal in making converts it was during isabella's stay in seville that on september second she confirmed, followed by Ferdinand at Zerez on October 18, 1477, a forged decree ascribed to Frederick II, granting certain privileges to the Inquisition of Sicily. Adelaide refers us to another of his own books for further discussion of the forged decree. And he goes on to say, This was done at the request of Filippo de Barbary, subsequent, subsequently inquisitor of Sicily, then at the court, whom both monarchs qualify as their confessor. Now we had learned that Torquemada was Isabella's confessor just a few sentences ago. He is said to have exercised considerable influence with them in overcoming the opposition to the establishment of the Inquisition in Castile. But even with this, we do not find Jones's account here to be incredible. And we would probably have to dig much deeper to garner the truth as to which account is more accurate. We will return to Jones's narrative. In 1478, she, meaning Isabella, sent a delegation to Pope Sixtus IV to procure the necessary bull, and Jones documents these things in his footnotes, so it seems to me on the surface that his account is, is indeed credible, because the reaction of Isabella as early as early the next year, tells us that she probably was indeed convinced to a great degree by the preaching 
of Alfonso de Hoyeda. In 1478, she sent a delegation to Pope Sixtus IV to procure the necessary bull. Less than two years later, Mohammed II, head of the newly vitalized Turkish forces in the former capital of the Eastern Roman Empire, Constantinople, which fell in 1453, ravaged the coast of Apulia, a district in southern Italy, in anger after failing to take the island of Rhodes. On August 11, 1480, Muhammad took Otranto in Naples and immediately put half of the population to the sword. The archbishop and his clergy were slaughtered after being tortured. When the news arrived in Spain in mid-September, the threat of the resurgent Turk convinced Ferdinand and Isabella that they could no longer vacillate. They put into immediate effect the powers Sixtus granted them two years earlier. The Spanish Inquisition came into existence when Ferdinand and Isabella were dealing with long-standing and seemingly intractable civil war and anarchy. Additionally, they declared war on the Muslim Kingdom of Granada in 1482. The creation of the Inquisition is an indication they saw Jews and Judaizers as central to both the Muslim problem in the territory yet to be conquered and the problem of anarchy in areas under their control. And E. Michael Jones has already documented that as fact, as well as the fact that many conversos were abandoning Spain to go to the land of the Turks and support a renewed Turkish cause against Christian Europe. On September 17, 1480, Juan de San Martin, Bachelor of Theology and Friar of San Pablo in Seville, and Miguel de Morillo, Master of Theology, were appointed Grand Inquisitors, with Juan Ruiz de Medina as their advisor. Tomás Torquemada, whom Jones has informed us was a converso, was brought in as a consulting expert, quite possibly according to Walsh. He had beside him, and Walsh is an American historian, whom Jones has cited before, he had beside him for reference a copy of Americ's Directorium, borrowed from some Dominican convent in Aragon or Languard, Languedoc, I'm probably destroying that French word, I'm sorry, Languedoc. The friars were solemnly informed that any dereliction of duty would lead to their removal, with forfeiture of all their temporalities and denaturalization in the kingdom. By royal order, they received free transportation to Seville, the town where the Judaizing heretics were most flagrantly and deeply rooted. In Seville, the Inquisition began its work. And this Imeric is Nicholas Imeric, a Roman Catholic theologian. And he served as the Inquisitor General of the Inquisition of the Crown of Aragon in the later half of the 14th century. He had written this directorium 
that Jones refers to in the hands of Torquemada, the Directorium Inquisitorum, a handbook for Inquisition procedure which had been employed in Europe for three centuries. Jones continues, The question of the sincerity of the conversos had been debated continually. The rabbis of North Africa were unequivocal. If the conversions were real and voluntary, converts were called Meshumadim. Unwilling converts were known as Anusim. There was ample evidence. The conversos continued living in some measure as Jews, but with the advantage now of enjoying rights accorded to Christians. In Majorca, one of the the largest of the Balearic Islands off the coast of Spain and the Mediterranean. In Majorca, a rabbi commented, the authorities are lenient with the conversos and allow them to do as they will. Many modern writers, in no way anti-Semitic, consistently identify the conversos as Jews, an influential school in modern Jewish historiography has likewise ironically insisted that the Inquisition was right. All conversos were aspiring Jews. Yitzhak Baer, a, a Jewish historian who's often cited in Jones's narrative and will be cited at length by him tonight, in, this, in the remaining part of this chapter, Yitzhak Baer states uncompromisingly, the conversos and Jews were one people united by destiny. So here we see in the writings of the Jews themselves that the Jews themselves are racists because they understand that even if a Jew loses his religion, and goes so far as claiming to be a Christian, he is still a Jew, and we would have to agree. Racism is therefore an innate Jewish trait, going back all of these hundreds of years. But why is it evil for Christians to be racist as well? Because the Jews have always been the masters of their own hypocrisy. However, they are indeed correct in one regard, that all Jews are united by a common destiny, regardless of their profession of faith. They're all going to hell. Continuing with Jones. The simplest way to resolve the conflict is to con- conclude that both sides were right. From the Christian perspective, many conversos were virtually practicing Jews. They remained Christians voluntarily, but it was their voluntary Christianity which marked them in Jewish eyes as renegades, Meshumadim. Once the crown, in collaboration with the church, enforced orthodoxy on the conversos, meaning that they would have to live as Christians because they could be Christians in name. That doesn't mean that they're Christians in practice. Jews can never be Christians in practice. Many regretted their conversions. A Jewish doctor in Soria in 1491 
recalled an old converso who told him, weeping, how much he repented having turned Christian. Speaking of another converso, the doctor said he believed in neither the Christian nor the Jewish faith. There was also confusion due to cultural inertia, which may or may not have been innocent theologically. The old Christians, meaning the true Spaniards, the old Christians noticed vestigial Jewish practices in matters of family habits and cuisine, residual residual Jewish culture and vocabulary, kinship, links between Jews and conversos. These remnants were identifiably Jewish. Many commentators maintain such cultural behavior did not constitute evidence of Judaizing. The same commentators argue that the converso danger was invented to justify spoliation of conversos. They would say the same thing about the Nazis. The harvest of heretics reaped by the early Inquisition owed its success to deliberate falsification or to the completely indiscriminate way in which residual Jewish customs were interpreted as being heretical, though it can certainly be identified in the period after the forced conversions of 1492. There was no systematic conversal religion in the 1480s to justify the creation of an inquisition. Much of the evidence for Judaizing was thin, if not false. Jones does not necessarily accept those arguments, and of course, neither should we. He continues, On the other hand, the reaction to the arrival of the Inquisition in Seville indicates that more than dietary issues were at stake. Diego de Suzanne, a Seville rabbi who had amassed a fortune delivered a fiery speech urging Jews and conversos to recruit faithful men, collect a store of arms, and that the first arrest by the inquisitors should be the signal of a rising in which the inquisitors should be slain, and thus an emphatic warning be given to deter others from renewing the attempt. Suzanne's daughter, whose loveliness had won for her the name of Formosa Fembra, a Spanish term meaning beautiful woman, revealed the details of the intrigue to her lover, who informed the Inquisition the plot was afoot. When Suzanne was arrested, panic seized the conversos, and many fled, some to Rome. And that too was not fortuitous. When the first auto-da-fe, auto-da-fe is a term which means act of faith and was used to describe a public penance. When the first auto-da-fe was celebrated in Seville on February 6th, 1481, Diego de Suzanne was one of six burned at the stake. Bernaldez, who was in Seville then, claimed the rabbi died as a Christian. 700 conversos accused by the Inquisition of heresy in Seville in 1481 abjured and were reconciled to the church. 
there was no longer any doubt in the minds of the secret Jews that the queen was as earnest about this affair as she had been about the murders and looting she had punished. As a result, panic spread through Spain, and resistance to government authority ceased. The Inquisition claimed the lives of three of the wealthiest and most important citizens of Seville, including Suzanne. Fray Alonso de Hoyeda preached the sermon at the ceremony. He too died a few days later from the plague which claimed 15,000 people in Seville and we may rather cynically be led to believe that the deaths from the plague were somehow due to the increased contact with Jews. I say that tongue-in-cheek. The Inquisition began with an edict of grace during which those suspected of Judaizing had time to come forward, confess their sins, be absolved, and then reconciled to the church after performing suitable penance. The Inquisition insisted on capital punishment only if the heretic refused to recant, or if he were caught at least three times in backsliding, the first three strikes you're out rule evidently, an indication of bad faith and duplicity. Walsh insists, never in its entire history did the Holy Office proceed against the Jews, either on racial grounds as Jews or on religious grounds as members of the synagogue. Far from attacking the law of Moses, it defended that revelation against certain sects of heretics as an essential part of Catholic truth. Over the Jew as Jew, it claimed no jurisdiction. It was a Christian tribunal, which concerned itself with Jews only when they were Christians, or when they went out of their way to commit offenses against Christians, either by deriding Christian beliefs or ceremonies, or persuading Christians to give up the faith. And here we witness the confusion which is caused, and how the Jews benefit by that confusion whenever they are confused for the actual people of the Old Testament. Through an acceptance of the false claims of their identity, they are forever able to subvert Christian nations and Christian kingdoms. Jones continues by writing, Walsh claims the Jews actively sought to bring conversos back to Judaism, and the fact that Jews scattered throughout Christendom carried on a continuous and effective propaganda which, while it persisted, was bound to make impossible the complete Christianizing of society is freely admitted by Jewish scholars, as I, meaning Walsh, have taken elsewhere to note. As a whole, says I. Abrams and Jones is quoting yet another Jew. Heresy was a reversion to Old Testament and even Jewish ideals. It is indubitable that the heretical doctrines of the southern French Albigenses in the beginning of the 13th century, as of the Hussites in the 15th, were largely the result of friendly intercourse between 
Christians and Jews. So Jones perpetuates the false claims of Jewish identity by accepting the statements of Jews who assert that identity. But the Jews are not the Hebrews or even the Israelites of the Old Testament. Here we also believe that Jones gives the Jews credit where it is not due. And of course the Jews have again taken credit, which they did not earn. Huss, Jan Huss, was a follower of Wycliffe. And both men were correct on many of their positions concerning scripture, where the organized church had gone wrong. However, the Jews did very successfully exploit the resulting divisions. Continuing with Jones. The Jews, as the disputations over the Talmud showed, were no longer following the law of Moses, and we would interject that actually the Jews had never followed the law of Moses, as the New Testament clearly demonstrates. The Talmud had absorbed the Torah, and we will discuss that, in a, in a few moments. The Talmud had absorbed the Torah and turned the Jews into a permanent fifth column in Christian culture, agitating for revolution when they were powerful enough or subversion when they were not. If the Jews had confined their activities to the synagogue and their allegiance to the law of Moses, Walsh says... A great deal of conflict and even bloodshed might have been avoided. Unfortunately, during their dispersion, under all the incredible sufferings and affronts they endured in country after country, they supplemented the revealed teachings of the Torah with others which, judging by their fruits, had a source quite other than the tables or tablets of Mount Sinai. If Judaism could not survive without the Talmud, as the Jews maintained in France, when it was taken away by Louis the Ninth, I believe that was in the 11th or 12th century, then the Jews were involved in perpetual war against Christendom, because the Jews included in the Talmud and the Talmudic books many obscene and blasphemous anecdotes concerning Christ and his church, together with curses and imprecations against Christians, and bits of practical advice for outwitting and exploiting them. Jewish denial only made their stance seem more subversive. While Jones and Walsh did well to point out the true Jewish nature and its reflection in the Talmud, they failed to notice what history proves, that the people known as Jews are not the Israelites of old. So rather than the Talmud having absorbed the Torah, in fact, the writers of the Talmud expropriated the Torah and have used it to perpetrate a masquerade, a grand act of Jewish identity theft which began during another forced conversion in the second century BC when John Hyrcanus faced the same problems that medieval Spain faced and he also thought that they could be resolved by forcing all of the Edomites and Canaanites of ancient Judea into the then white and pre-Christian religion of Judaism.
From the time of Herod, the Edomites took over the kingdom. There was no Ferdinand and Isabella back then. The Edomites took over the kingdom and have ever since operated as criminals under the mask of the Old Testament. The story is told in the pages of both Flavius Josephus and in the New Testament. But Jones, Walsh, and many other historians have missed it because they blindly accept the assertions of the Jews. In ancient times, Edomites became Jews, and the kingdom of God was subverted. In modern times, Jews became Christians, and then infiltrated and corrupted Christianity into secularism so that once again they can coexist as parasites among them, and the kingdom of God is subverted once again. Returning to Jones, he says, Once the true nature of Judaism, the corrupted Edomite form, became clear in the 13th century, both church and state had a duty to make war on it in some way. The only question was what kind of war. Saints like Vincent Ferrer, who felt that the only legitimate way to destroy an enemy was by making him into a friend, answered that question. And we must interject that Vincent Ferrer answered that question with a very wrong answer. So conversion was never the answer. Jews were subjected to persuasion as the prelude to conversion. Once the Jewish penchant for subversion and revolution became bound up with Spain's struggle with the Moors and its very existence as a nation, the spiritual program was politicized and physical force took the place of spiritual suasion. That paved the way for the ascendancy of another type of Jew, the opportunist. We would think that it was the same Jews who just put on a different or ripped off a mask and started acting as their true selves. The opportunist who was compelled at the sword's point or under the sickening fear of social and economic ostracization to accept baptism and who would wreak havoc for centuries to come. Wicked Christians wrongly forced Jews to the baptismal font, but it was also wrong of the Jews to convert under duress to a religion they believed false. We would agree with Jones that these were wicked Christians who forced the conversions of Jews, but they weren't wicked for what they were doing to Jews. They were wicked for what they were doing to Christianity. Their acceptance of forced conversion deepened the Jewish commitment to subversion and revolution when the self-loathing became common and psychologically intolerable. Unlike the rabbis, the Catholic Church told its faithful to die as martyrs rather than accept Islam or any other false religion. The command was so absolute that when a Jew accepted the Christian faith, he was presumed to have done so of his own free will. Any backsliding would be punished as heresy, especially since Judaizing 
was one of the most common and recurrent heresies. Worse was promoting backsliding in others. If it was a capital crime to deprive a man of his life, was not deprivation of a man's spiritual life equally grave? The logic was extended to justify torture in the bull ad extirpanda, just as thieves and robbers of temporal goods are forced to accuse their accomplices and to tell what crimes they have committed. For these are truly robbers and homicides of souls and thieves of the sacraments of God and of the Christian faith. We must comment that Christ never tried to convert the Jews. Rather, he told them in John chapter 10, But you believe me not, because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. Foretelling the coming destruction of Jerusalem, Christ then said in Luke chapter 21, For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. For there shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people, who were not his sheep. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the nations until the times of the nations be fulfilled. This parallels a prophecy in Jeremiah that says that Jerusalem would become like a broken bottle where it could never be put together again. (coughs) And that the bad fig Jews would be led away captive into all nations and fall by the edge of the sword and become a taunt and a proverb and a reproach and a curse. That is how Christians should have always viewed the Jews. There is no rehabilitation for the Jew. And all Christians reading the scripture should have realized that. Jones continues, The logic of force eventually turned Vincent Ferrer's conversion campaign upside down. The Inquisition, especially in its more severe later stages, forced Jews and conversos to rethink their position. If the wave of conversions under Ferrer drove the Jews apart, the Inquisition drove them back together. If laws had given too much incentive for conversion, promoting opportunism for social and economic gain, as we spoke at length last week, the Inquisition, which punished only conversos and which punished them more and more severely, provided incentives for reversion, and the Inquisition had no jurisdiction over Jews. While the religious Jews, while the object of the Inquisition was to secure the unity of faith, Leia, meaning Henry Charles Leia, the American historian whom Jones has quoted elsewhere and whom we cited at length earlier this evening because he was in disagreement with Jones on the impact of Hoyeda on Isabella, Leia tells us, 
Its founding destroyed the hope that ultimately the Jews would be gathered into the fold of Christ. The awful spectacle of the autos de fe and the miseries intendant on the wholesale confiscations led the Jew to cherish more resolutely than ever the ancestral faith which served him it's really an anti-faith which served him as a shield from the terrors of the holy office meaning the terrors of the inquisition and the dreadful fate even impending over the conversos Hammond comments, and here Jones is citing British historian Henry Cannon, who was actually of mixed British, Irish, Burmese, and Nepalese descent, so he was a real bastard. Cannon comments, the reign of terror had an inevitable consequence. Conversos ceased to come forward to admit their errors. Instead, they were forced to take refuge in the very beliefs and practices that they and their parents had turned their backs on. Active Judaism, which existed among some conversos, seems to have been caused primarily by the awakening of their consciences under persecution. Under pressure, they reverted to the faith of their ancestors. A Jewish lady living in Siguenza was surprised in 1488 to encounter a man whom she had known previously as Valadolid as a Christian. Invalidolid, I'm sorry, as a Christian. He now professed to be a Jew. He was begging for charity among the Jews. What are you doing over here? she asked him. The Inquisition is around and will burn you. He answered, I want to go to Portugal. After no doubt equivocating for many years, he had made his decision and was going to risk all for it. In my opinion, these assessments of the plight of the conversos seem disingenuous, looking to make excuses by which to pity the Jews. If their conversions were sincere, they would have been living as Christians, and living as Christians, they would have had nothing to fear from the Inquisition. Jones already has demonstrated that the conversions were rarely sincere, where he only held up a few examples of what he could consider as sincere conversions. We may even doubt those few examples, because no Jew can be a Christian. Continuing with Jones. In May 1482, the Edict of Grace was announced in Valencia. All who wished to confess their sins would be received in private. According to the Andalusian priest historian, Andres Bernaldez. Most of those who repented were and were reconciled with the church did so as a means of being able to practice the Jewish rites in secret as they had previously done. According to Bernaldez, the confessions made by the conversos of Seville show that all of them were Jews, and from their statements, meaning religious Jews as opposed to true religious Christians, they were all racial Jews, and from their statements a similar inference can be drawn in regard to the conversos of Cordova, Toledo, Burgos, Segovia, and all the rest of Spain. 
all, continues Bernaldez, were Jews and clung to their hope like the Israelites in Egypt who suffered many blows at the hands of the Egyptians and yet believed that God would lead them out from the midst of them as he did with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. So too the conversos looked upon the Christians as Egyptians or worse. And of course Bernaldez also wrongly assumed that the Jews were the Old Testament Israelites. But if the Israelites were Jews, the Torah would be no different than the Talmud. Eve would have remained married to the serpent. Sodom and Gomorrah would never have been incinerated. The angels would have gladly consorted with the Sodomites, and Joshua would have invaded Canaan with pencils instead of swords. That's my opinion, anyway. Jones continues, As the Inquisition spread through Spain, the severity of the punishments increased, while legal safeguards fell by the wayside. When many conversos escaped to Rome, the Pope heard their story firsthand. Sixtus IV concluded their complaints were well-founded, and that his intervention was necessary the Pope running cover for the Jews. In early 1482, the Pope informed the royal couple that the Inquisition had gone far beyond what he had authorized. In August 1483, he sent letters of absolution to the accused conversos. In May, Ferdinand rebuked Rome, warning the Pope not to interfere in what had become a state operation. The outcome would be satisfactory only if the king, who understood the situation in Spain much better than the pope, appointed the inquisitors. The king reminded the pope that the inquisition had been ineffective in eradicating heresy when under papal control. The Inquisition could only exist with power delegated from the Pope, but once on Spanish soil, it became a function of the state. Ferdinand and Isabella jealousy, jealously guarded their control over it, telling the Pope to mind his own business. In 1483, the conflict intensified. Despite the Pope's letters of absolution, Seville expelled all Jews. There can be no question, Bear tells us, this is Yitzhak Bear, the Jewish historian. If you want to call the Jew a historian, I'm sorry. Bear tells us that the Inquisitors had the last word in deciding on the expulsion of the Jews from Andalusia. At the end of that year, Tomas de Torquemada, the Dominican prior and confessor to the queen, was appointed Grand Inquisitor for all of Spain. The record of the Inquisition would prove erratic. In some instances, the tribunal proceeded in an orderly and moderate manner, while in others the methods employed were more like brutal assaults by soldiers than the conduct of a court of justice. With the later approach becoming more prevalent over time. 
Large commercial centers like Seville and Barcelona, Bear says, were totally ruined by the Inquisition. Toward the end of 1483, the Inquisition arrived in Ciudad Real. Following the traditional Edict of Grace, the first auto da fe took place on November 16, 1483. Many abjured and no one was burned. However, in February 1484, 34 persons were burned at the stake. Among them, Maria Gonzalez, who at first denied that she was a Jewess at heart, but then confessed, Bear, Jones mentioning Bear again, Bear supports the judgment of the Inquisition. Quote, Had she been allowed to live, she would certainly have been steadfast in her Jewish faith. This was true of most of the conversos of Ciudad Real. And that's the end of the quote. In Guadalupe, a woman confessed that she had eaten meat in her home on Good Friday. She also confessed, when her husband brought home a crucifix, she trampled on it and threw it down the privy. This woman admitted her guilt after her own daughter testified against her. Threatened with torture, she implicated others. The same Inquisition at Guadalupe revealed conversos had been entering monasteries so as to be able to practice the Jewish religion with greater safety. When the Inquisition arrived in Toledo in May 1485, the local conversos organized a revolt. The conspirators planned to assassinate the Inquisitors and the whole Christian population during the Corpus Christi processions, but the plot was discovered. The mayor of Toledo then had several conversos arrested and hanged. The Inquisition also brought out the worst in Jews, who used the trials to settle old scores. Many Jews were accused of bearing false witness against the conversos and sentenced to death by stoning. The first auto da fe in Toledo took place in February 1486, when 750 men and women from seven parishes were led through the streets and sentenced to various penances. In August, 27 conversos were burned at the stake. Between 1486 and 1490, 4,850 conversos were reconciled to the church and 112 were burned at the stake. I must admit that that is a disappointing proportion. Bear says the number absolved far exceeded the number condemned because the Christians of Toledo who demanded the utmost possible toleration of the conversos were very influential. The clemency shown them can have been dictated only by political considerations. The conversos wielded very considerable influence and they were an essential element of the population and the confiscated part of their fortunes could be used without annihilating the conversos themselves. According to Bear, the conversos of Teruel doubtless deserved their ill repute as Jews in fact. 
it is obvious that alongside the Jewish community of Teruel, T-E-R-U-E-L, I'm probably butchering the pronunciation of that also, there was a community of conversos who assembled for public worship, Bible readings, and the like. Most of them were descendants of Jews converted during the years 1391 to 1415. In 1485, the Inquisition came to Saragossa, and, as in Seville and Toledo, the Judaizers and their supporters conspired to kill the Inquisitors and terrorize their potential successors into inactivity. The plot included a plan to drown the Inquisition's assessor as he walked beside the Ebro River, but the assessor never walked alone. So the plotters next focused on Peter Arbuez. The government knew that something was afoot as early as January, but did nothing. Late in the evening of September 15th, the conspirators attacked Arbuez as he prayed in the cathedral. Arbuez was aware of the threat to his life. He was wearing chain mail and a steel helmet. His spear was leaning against a nearby pillar. The mortally wounded Arbuez prayed for 24 hours before dying on September 17th. Miracles soon followed. The holy bell of Villela, Villela, I'm sorry, told of its own accord. The crowds mopped up his blood and worked wonders with it. The bell told of its own accord. I can only imagine that the miracles were claimed as a means to incite the people against the murderers, and that was certainly the result. The consequences for the conversos were disastrous. The miracles attested to Arbuez's sanctity, and the reaction to the murder broke the opposition to the Inquisition. In the revulsion to the murder, legal niceties were discarded, and the punishment and tortures knew no restraint. This murder turned the tide, which hitherto had been markedly hostile to the Inquisition. The news of the assassination spread through the city with marvelous rapidity, and before dawn the streets were filled with excited crowds shouting, Burn the conversos who have slain the Inquisitor. It was probably in consequence of the murder that Ferdinand and Isabella succeeded in obtaining from Innocent Aid papal letters of April 1487, ordering all princes and rulers and magistrates to seize and deliver to the Inquisition of Spain all fugitives who should be designated to them, thus extending its arms everywhere throughout Christendom and practically outlawing all refugees. The murder of Peter Arbuez annihilated all opposition to the Inquisition for the next hundred years. So effectively that some historians speculate the murder may have been arranged by the crown, 
although there is no evidence of this. No matter, the murder played into Ferdinand's hand in his attempt to end the chaos and defeat the Moors. In 1488, he issued instructions reforming the procedure of the inquisitors. Thus, the Jewish historian Baer concludes, the last and most daring attempt by the conversos to resist the Inquisition by force ended in failure. Most of the murder suspects were conversos and or others whose Jewish leanings were publicly known. In August 1487, the main conspirator, Jaime de Montesa, was executed after he confessed. He was a typical free-thinking Morano skeptic, reported to have repeatedly quoted the saying, in this world you will not see me in trouble, and in another you will not see me in torment. After Montessa's death, more and more conversos were implicated in Judaizing, including advisors to the royal couple. In essence, Baer concludes, the Inquisition was correct in its reading of the Converso's' attitudes. Baer cites the Coplas de Mingo Revolgo of Diego Arias de Avila, in which Converso's are portrayed as a group which trampled the Christians underfoot and plunged them into debt and enslaved them in all manner of servitude so that the Christians groan under so much robbery and spoliation. Torture played a role in these confessions. Now the Jews do these same things openly and without fear of persecution, trampling Christians underfoot and plunging them into debt and enslaving them in all manner of servitude is now the order of the day. The Inquisition moved the Jews to Holland, England, and Germany, and the Jews have staved off punishment ever since by keeping the Christian world divided against itself. Note that Jones has been quoting the very candid, or at least often candid, Jewish historian Baer, but Baer seems to be candid not because he is honest, but rather because he is a proud Jew defending other Jews who he imagines were also as proud. That is what I attribute to Bear's candid demeanor regarding the Inquisition. Returning to Jones, the Inquisitors usually proceeded with some respect for rules of law and justice demonstrating facts that were unquestionably correct and refraining from malicious libels. In the fury following the murder of Peter Arboes, nice, I'm sorry, legal niceties fell by the wayside, and the classical slanders, the Jews caused the plague, the Jews engaged in ritual sacrifice, etc., made their way into the Inquisition's proceedings. In December 1490, U.K. Franco was tried for attempting to bring conversos back to Judaism and for crucifying a Christian child on Good Friday. 
The conspirators allegedly were going to use the child's heart and consecrated host in a magic spell to kill Christians by infecting them with rabies. Franco denied the charges. Torquemada removed him from the jurisdiction of the Inquisition and appointed special judges, leaving Bear to conclude his goal was the complete extermination of Spanish Jewry. When the victorious Spanish army marched into Malaga after the successful campaign to drive the Moors from Spain, they found 400 Jews living there, Jews and Muslims living together in peace. Imagine that. Virtually all were Judaized Christians who had fled the Inquisition from Spain to Granada, where they had reverted to Judaism. The apostates were ordered to decide whether they wanted to live completely as Christians or leave the country. Shortly after the royal couple entered Granada, they extended that option to all of Spain's Jews, which we must note would not include the thousands of Jews, Jewish conversos, who were reconciled to the church as long as they remained reconciled. <coughs> On March 31st, 1492, while still in Granada, Ferdinand and Isabella signed the edict expelling the Jews from the kingdoms of Castile and Aragon. As before, Jews could convert and remain, but the Inquisition has, had removed much of the incentive to convert. Large numbers chose to leave. Their experience in Granada convinced the monarchs that a total separation was the only solution to the Jewish problem they identified. By exporting a problem they could not solve, Ferdinand and Isabella saved Spain from the fate of Poland. Northern Europe, though, inherited Spain's problem and cities like Antwerp became hotbeds of revolutionary activity. The expulsion of the Jews and rabbinical justification for false conversion established the cultural matrix from which the revolutionary Jew emerged. If a Talmudic Jew could profess an idolatrous false religion in public and remain a Jew in good standing, then he simply could not be trusted, and the anti-Semites were right to view him as a dangerous subversive who threatened church and state. Forced conversion was wrong, but the acceptance of it was also wrong. Worse still, acceptance of insincere conversion enshrined the principle of deception and subversion as part of Jewish life. The Jew, according to the principles of the Old Testament from Moses to the Maccabees, had a duty to resist idolatry and incorporation into idolatrous religions to the point of death. The Talmudic teaching that condoned false conversion broke radically from Moses' teaching. The insincere Jewish converts to Christianity made Christian subversion. I'm sorry. The insincere Jewish converts to Christianity made subversion and deceit a way of life. The children of the devil 
and this is my response to Jones's statement here, the children of the devil, once their true nature is discovered, have no choice but to react as subversive revolutionaries, when they would rather practice their warfare against Christians through quiet deception. Jones once again falls short of an entirely correct conclusion because he misidentifies the Jew. The acceptance of the Old Testament Messiah cannot be quantified as idolatry, and the rejection of the Old Testament Messiah reveals those who say they are Judeans and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Of course, Jones follows the Roman Catholic Church in this error, which is basically a failure to believe the scriptures and an acceptance of Jewish claims contrary to scripture. Jones continues, Converso behavior and worldview were similar to that of the other disaffected European Catholics. The German monks who violated their vows of celibacy with impunity led double lives too. Living a lie created animosity toward the institution to which they had made vows they would not fulfill. The first Lutherans and the first Calvinists were virtually indistinguishable from each other and from the conversos in theology and practice. Both movements drew their leadership from the sexually corrupt lower Catholic clergy. Calvin's lieutenant, the erstwhile Catholic, Theodore Beza, was, says Walsh, a glaring example of the too common corruption. Though not even a priest, he enjoys the incomes of two benefices. Through political influence, lavishes the church's money on his concubine, and generally leads a vicious and dissolute life. When a church is under attack, he hastens to join the enemy. As Calvin's lieutenant, this righteous man thunders against the corruption of the old church of which he was partly the cause. Beza's example was not too uncommon. The monasteries of Europe were full of monks leading double lives. Spain was no exception. Walsh continues, There is no doubt about the laxity of the monasteries of Seville and Val. Valladolid, Valladolid would be the correct pronunciation, whose members embraced Protestantism, nor of the degeneracy of the Augustinians in Saxony, who broke away from the church almost en masse in 1521. In England, it was the reformed Observatine Franciscans who withstood Henry VIII even to death, while the relaxed conventuals and other badly disciplined monks and priests formed a nucleus of the Church of England. The first Protestants, as a rule, were bad Catholics. And we must say that while the Jews certainly took advantage of the divisions among Christians in the late Middle Ages, many of the grievances which Christians had with the Catholic Church were legitimate. And while many of the humanists in the Church were immoral men, the Roman Catholic Church demands for a clerical celibacy are 
unscriptural. They are contrary to the natural order of God's creation. They are contrary to the doctrines of the apostles. And they actually foster immorality themselves. Paul of Tarsus warns in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that because of fornication, every man must have his own wife. It's the natural urge and desire of man to marry and have a wife. The Catholic Church wanted to overcome the nature of the Jew by baptizing the Jew, and it failed. The Catholic Church wants to overcome the nature of man by forcing him to remain celibate in its service, and that would also fail. That is why we have such a homosexual problem in the Catholic Church today, because only a fag would want to not get married to a woman. Jones is basically an apologist for immorality caused by the Roman Catholic Church's arrogance that it could make policies in defiance of the natural creation of God. And it can't. It will fail every time. Back to Jones. The Spanish expulsions began in May 1492. The Jews had to sell their property for a song. Even though instructions were issued to all the localities to pay the Jews all that was owed to them, and to enable them to pay their own debts, and to dispose of their possessions on fair and equitable terms, Torquemada forbade Christians from aiding the departing Jews after August 9th. No Christian was allowed to communicate with the Jews or give them food or shelter. The Jews were not allowed to sell their synagogues. The property that they could sell was devalued because so many were selling to meet the expulsion deadline imposed by the crown. Bernaldez chronicled the sufferings of the Jews. He also cites a, converse, a conversal woman from Omazan who claimed years later those who remained behind did so in order not to lose their property. In the fateful year, 1492, Rodrigo Borgia ascended the papal throne and took the name Alexander VI. Pope Alexander contravened papal tradition by banning conversos from the Dominican order in Spain. In Rome, he amended the proceedings of the Roman Carnival by extending the traditional foot race of the Roman Jews. But Jews could always expect a friendly reception in Rome and throughout the Papal States, and many Jews went there after the expulsion. Alexander did his part by hiring Jewish physicians. The Inquisition and the expulsion undid the work of St. Vincent Ferrer. Jews were convinced Conversion was, or would be, a mistake. After the edict of expulsion was announced, the clergy launched a conversion campaign, but the in incentives were gone. There were few conversions, and most Jews left. We still must remember that we had 
thousands of Jews quote-unquote reconciled to the church earlier. Most went to Portugal, from whence they were expelled a few years later. Many went to Turkey, which received them with open arms. It was out of the Ladino community in Izmir that the false messiah, Shabbatai Zebi, would arise 150 years later, buoyed by the writings of the Lurianic Kabbalah, whose school had been established in Gaza as a result of the expulsions. Once again, Jews and Turks, Gaza was in the Ottoman Empire of the time, Jews and Turks getting along just swell. In July, on July 31st, 1492, the last Jew left Spain. In 1494, Alexander VI granted Ferdinand and Isabella the title of Catholic kings, listing the expulsion of the Jews as one of their accomplishments. Gian Pico della Mirandola praised them for it too. Gucciardini, the Florentine historian and statesman, praised them as well. The expulsion of the Jews, along with the defeat of the Moors, had united Spain and raised it to a rank of a great power. When Spain was in the hands of Jews and heretics, it had been in anarchy. Gucciardini concluded, had the situation not been corrected, Spain would, in a few years, have forsaken the Catholic religion. We mustn't forget that according to the narrative, there were thousands of Jews by race who managed to stay in Spain as converts. They're very plausibly mingled into the Spanish Catholic population today. So the lines between wheat and tares were not redrawn as clearly as we may imagine. Of course, 1492 was also the year that Columbus supposedly discovered America, but Northern Europeans had already known about America for many centuries, and it is plausible that the Portuguese seamen and Jewish merchants had also already known about it, but had simply not publicized the knowledge for fear of competition, which they got when Columbus discovered the West Indies or, or the islands of the Caribbean. Many Jews would end up fleeing to America in search of a new haven and a new base for their criminal enterprises. It is not a mistake, for instance, that Brazil was named for its iron ore, the word for iron being Barzel in Hebrew or that Aruba in Hebrew describes a trading emporium, and other similar names exist as well. But the Jewish expulsion from Spain and forced relocation of many Jews to Holland and Germany 
as well as Italy and elsewhere. And one correct premise of Jones's book is the resulting spread of subversion and revolutionary activity which the Jews brought with them wherever they went. And where the Jews did not start their own revolutions, they took every opportunity to turn events to their own advantage. When we return to E. Michael Jones, we shall discuss some of the other aspects of the conversal problem in the debates of the Talmud from chapter 7 of his book titled Reuschlin vs. Pfefferkorn. Now I understand that I have stopped short here of explaining the great number of Jews who made it to the New World not long after 1492 many of them on the Spanish galleons, but also many of them with the Portuguese. And in fact, I was um, checking out some information today preparing for this program that the Jews who later infested Havana, and Jews were totally infesting Havana by the middle of the 16th century, had actually come from Portuguese Brazil and not directly from Spain, which was information that was new to me. But that, too, is a story for another time. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening.